Welcome to another episode of the Comrades Classroom Podcast. On this episode, we turn y'all on to one of our favorite disability justice resources titled Re-Envisioning the Revolutionary Body, a university talk by Mia Mingus. This talk is about the ways in which ableism and disability impact organizing, organizations, and so much more. The first part of the discussion will focus on building our knowledge about disability, ableism, and the medical industrial complex. What ways can we better show up for ourselves and our comrades? During the second half, we will explore the connections between disability, reproductive justice, race, queerness, and social movements. Because we put no labor into this episode, this is all Mia Mingus's work, we ask y'all to direct any donations and support to their work using the links in the show notes, to their PayPal, and or by donating to the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective using also the link in the show notes. Thank y'all. Enjoy. Excuse me, everyone, I have a brief announcement to make. Jesus was black, Ronald Reagan was the devil, and the government is lying about 9-11. Thank you for your time, and good night. having that dream where you made the white people riot, weren't you? But I was telling the truth. How many times have I told you you better not even dream about telling white folk the truth? You understand me? Shoot. Making white people riot. You better learn how to lie like me. I'm going to find me a white man and lie to him right now. I am the stone that the builder refused. I am the visual, the inspiration that made ladies sing the blues. I'm the spark that makes your idea bright. The same spark that lights the dark so that you can know your left from your right. I am the ballad in your box, the bullet in the gun, the inner glow that lets you know to call your brother son. The story that just begun, the promise of what's to come. And I'm going to remain a soldier till the war is won. doing <laughs> oh I feel so special right now um, thank you all so much for having me it's wonderful to be here and I am so excited to talk about queerness and disability with you all there's so much that we could talk about um, so I know that we could talk for well I could talk for weeks and weeks and months and months and still not be satisfied um, so I'm really excited to be here and I just want to say thank you also to the folks who have brought me here and the folks who have made it possible for me to be here everyone has been so nice and the food has been delicious this morning or this afternoon I always like it when there's good food um, and I also want to open up that um, that I also would like to bring into the room the f other folks who have made it possible for me to be here, including the people who built this building, the folks who care for it every day and clean the floors um, and clean the bathrooms, as well as the folks in here in this country as well as around the globe who are being violently exploited for their resources and labor so that we can exist in this lovely air-conditioned building with access to clean water and food and able to sit in relative safety from military attacks or the police barging in. 
um, and including and honoring the Native and First Nations communities upon whose land we are currently on and whose occupation and genocide have also allowed us to be here. For this too, I firmly believe, must also be a part of our queer liberation. I would like to call into the room the many other comrades who move with me in this work for revolution and liberation, especially other queer, disabled women and trans people of color. I do this work with and for them, as well as for those yet to come. And I do this work because it really, it's what I wish I had had when I was growing up and coming into political consciousness. And I want to bring them into the room because I want to seriously resist and challenge and start to shift a culture of celebrityism in our movement I don't think that it's helpful for anybody and to shift away from individualism and more towards collective I'm thinking because I cannot and I do not do this work alone. It's built on the backs of queers, of women of color, disabled folks, adoptees, poor people, so many others who have come before me. And it's taken so much for me to even be able to be here as I am about to speak to you about queerness and disability. Has taken so much for us to even get to the point where disability and queerness would even be said in the same breath has taken so much for disability and queerness to be a worthy political subject to speak on, has taken so many, in particular I would say queer disabled folks who have been pushing, a, pushing to be their whole selves, challenging the ableism within queer community and the homophobia within disabled community, has taken so much for a queer disabled woman of color adoptee to be given the mic and listened to, so I feel very honored. And I, I also think it's important to say that I cannot speak from anything else but my own lived experience. Um, I am somebody who is physically disabled and so that is how I enter in through disability and I certainly um, work to be in solidarity with folks who have lots and lots of different types of disabilities um, but definitely don't know all of those histories, don't know all of those lived experiences as well as I'm Korean and that's where I enter into being Asian and so can't speak for all um, Asian and Pacific Islander folks as well. Um, I and you you know, you would think it goes without saying, but I feel like it, it is important to say because of the icon, the way that we iconize people, right? And so I cannot speak for all disabled people, cannot speak for all adoptees or all queer people. I cannot and do not speak for all queer disabled women of color or all queer people of color. And I certainly most definitely do not speak for the entire disability justice movement or any movement for that matter. Um, I, I know that the disability justice movement is very new in a lot of ways, um, and it, like all movements, the disability justice movement is large and it's vast, and it has folks that are doing disability justice work in lots and lots of different ways and that are all exciting and that are look very different because they're you know, grounded in people's own lived experiences, grounded in people's own geographic location. I would like to also add that I do this work in service of community. Um, all of this work that I do in my speaking and my writing, and I, I tell my story with the knowing that our stories, and I truly believe this, that our stories are tools for liberation. I speak knowing that all of our voices are important. I speak to leave evidence for the people like me who are searching for reflection and recognition and a yes, we exist. 
I speak to leave evidence for folks who have been told that disability is not as important as race or that gender justice will have to wait until after class equity is won. For folks who have been told that how you feel is less important than what you think. For those who don't have the luxury of being able to rattle off 10, even five writers or books that reflect their identities or experiences. For those of us who straddle the lines between multiple oppressed communities. For those of us who are working to end violence for all of us, not just some of us. For those of us who truly believe that no one's safety is more important than anyone else's safety, even when we feel unsafe. For queer people of color building family and home in ways that feed and honor us, and for disabled queer women of color struggling to love ourselves and each other. I'm here this afternoon, well, one, because I was asked to speak. I'm so excited to follow the amazing lineup of folks that you all have had, but particularly because I want us to keep building together and keep reaching out together to each other, because I want us to start seeing each other as comrades, as fellow ordinary people who have changed the course of history because they risked working together for a better world, because they knew that they needed each other. I want us to start seeing each other as fellow movement builders, as community. I want us to start thinking about each other as people to be in solidarity with, to be radical allies, or I like to say comrades to, people to be accountable to. I know oftentimes we go through the world and we think, how can I get them to join my struggle? How can I get them to be supportive of the work that I'm doing? But what if we shifted our thinking to the folks that we meet and we think, how can we be in support of what the work that they are doing and the struggles that they're facing? And I know, hopefully all of you here know, that we all have a responsibility to end oppression and cycles of violence, and hopefully we know that our lives are not separate from the people in this room, the folks who cook and grow our food, the people who made our clothing that we're wearing right now, the folks who assembled our computers, who vacuumed this floor, as well as the communities in Wisconsin and Egypt and Haiti and Japan and Palestine and, and more. Um, I'm going to remember to drink water because I forget and not spill it on me. So I'd like to start our time off together with a moment of breath and awareness for this work and what we'll be talking about. I, I want to remind us of our bodies and to honor them as we hold our own stories and our histories. I feel like in this work, a lot of times things are very heady and we forget to bring our bodies into the conversation. And I think that's one of the strengths that, that disability justice brings to us again and again and again, is to not leave our bodies out, that we can't, for many of us, we, we can't forget that we're in our bodies. And I want to acknowledge that what we're holding in this room, or what I'm holding, trying to hold with you, is ending oppression and violence. And I don't think that that's easy work. And I think it's important to recognize the toll that it takes on our bodies, our hearts, our minds, and our spirits day in and day out. I want to acknowledge the many of us who are here, that are here in this room, who are survivors of one form of violence or another. Many of us have been witness to violence. Many of us have been violent, have caused harm, colluded in violence, willingly or not, whether it's through our tax dollars or through actual actions that we took. And all of us, I think, have been impacted by a culture of relentless violence, right, that feeds off of oppression as well, that's used in service of oppression. And I would like to 
acknowledge that not only do, are we carrying legacies of violence with us and abuse and oppression and privilege and trauma every day, right, into our work, into our relationships with each other, into this room, but that we also bring legacies of resistance and survival and love in the face of silence and erasure. And those carry us through all the time. And we bring those into this room as well, along with our other legacies. We bring legacies of resiliency that are deep and strong, which we are a part of. And I think in all of our work, it is our responsibility to grow and cultivate resiliency, not just resist, right? That we must grow and cultivate resiliency for ourselves individually and collectively as much as we are resisting. We can't just fight against the world that we currently have, but we must also be working to create the kind of world that is inspired by our deepest desires for ourselves, our families, and our communities. And I say families broadly. That includes chosen families, situational family. But I think it's from this place, from a place of resiliency, where I would like us to always start, from the world that we want and the world that we desire. I always think it's important to say that I am here today as a queer, disabled, Korean woman, transracial and transnational adoptee raised in a US territory in the Caribbean, none of which are more or less important. For me, these are not just descriptive terms, but they're also political identities and political experiences based out of my own and other people's lived experiences. And I understand them, all of them, to be powerful ways of moving through and understanding the world. It's not like, oh, I just happen to be disabled or, oh, I just happen to be an Asian woman. I think all of them are political. And so when I speak about queerness, it inherently includes a collective anti-oppression and particularly race, disability, gender, and class analysis because queerness is raced and gendered and classed. And indeed, to be as able-bodied as possible is in so many ways to be as white and straight and heterosexual as possible, especially when we understand that one of the main reasons queer people are seen as less than is because we do not fit one of the main criteria to be able-bodied, the ability to reproduce. As we connect different systems of oppression, I think we can simultaneously understand them to be intimately connected and made out of the same fabric. To speak about queerness doesn't mean that I'm not speaking about race or disability or living in the South, but in fact it's inherent, or it's what I like to call ground level, that they are all part of what it means to be queer because that is how I experience my life. What I have learned from living in the South has helped me to survive as a queer person. What I have learned from being adopted has helped me to survive as a disabled person. To me, queer liberation includes an ending ableism, white supremacy, heterosexism, the gender binary, economic exploitation, population control, colonization, male supremacy, war and militarization, and the ownership of children and land, and so much more. How are y'all doing? Good? Am I going too fast? When I get excited, I go fast. If I'm going too fast, just give me a little hand wave or something. So when I think about my queerness, I, I think that it is always changing. It's always evolving. It's always deepening. Who I was as a queer person, what, five years ago, is not who I am now. It grows with me. It changes me, and I change it. And I, I love being queer so much. I love getting to talk on it. It's so exciting. Um, but that my queerness is informed by and intimately connected to being all 
of these things that I've been talking about, right? To being disabled, to being an adoptee, a person of color, um, my middle class upbringing, to being a woman, to being raised outside of the continental US, to growing up in a rural feminist community. And queerness is a part of everything I do. Uh, how could it not be? Um, and just, I wanna just say a brief, have a moment just that when I say queer, I think it means lots and lots of different things when people use the word queer and just to be specific. So sometimes when people say queer, they mean it just descriptively, right? They mean it as an umbrella term to encapsulate everybody who's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, pansexual, and then I think it's like a growing alphabet soup, right? The list just goes on and on. Some people include intersex, some people don't, depending on where you are. Allies are included in that, sometimes they're not. Um, but it's usually, right, in, in a lot of ways in this first way, it's used descriptively. It's just to say, oh, so-and-so is a lesbian, or so-and-so is gay. So we would say, so-and-so is queer, so-and-so is queer. So other, the second way I think that queerness gets used is as a political term. So people say, oh, you know, Lisa is queer, or, um, you know, uh, all I can think of is the name brother, and that's not a word, that's not a name. Um, Bianca is queer, <laughs> uh, and meaning as a political term, right? Meaning that they have an analysis about heterosexism, that they understand the connections between transphobia and homophobia, that they stand in solidarity with other queer people, that whether, they're, whether they specifically or descriptively, right, identify as lesbian, they have a solid understanding of solidarity and connection with folks who are gay, folks who are bisexual, folks who are trans gender, making sense, right? So sometimes they get used, and then they get used interchangeably all the time. We just say so-and-so is queer and we don't really know what they're talking about. And I know probably all of you in this room know that there's lots of folks who are queer who are not queer, right? There's lots of people who are lesbian who maybe don't understand the connections between other queer people. But when I say queer, I mean that I am both descriptively queer and I have, I think about it as a political identity, right? It's something, a way, a politic, a way that I move through the world. It's intentional. So I'm using it in both of those ways at the same time. And I'll try to distinguish that if I ever do want to pull them apart. And I don't think it's to say that one is better than the other. I think it's more just to distinguish what we mean and to be specific around what we're actually saying. And when we actually use the term queer, what do we mean? I think there's many reasons why people can or cannot be politically queer, and a lot of those are really valid reasons um, that have to do with violence and being targeted, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not to say that folks who are descriptively queer are not as good as people who are politically queer by any means. Is that making sense? Yes, okay. I feel always like I'm in a workshop. I'm making sense, like I'm gonna talk to you all. We're gonna have a conversation right now. <laughs> so. Whenever I do this work, I like to say that this work is part of who I am, and I am a part of this work. It's very hard for me to pull those two things apart, that part of doing this work, I think, is sharing our stories and learning from them. And like I said, I believe that our stories are tools for liberation. All of our stories, however painful or embarrassing or privileged or seemingly boring they may be, right? Oftentimes, we think the only people that have stories are the people who are oppressed, and I, I don't think that that's true. I think our stories of privilege actually can help us learn a tremendous deal about how to end oppression and what we're fighting against and the conditions that we're living under. 
Learning to understand my experiences and my story as valuable and complex as something outside of wrong, it let me find my breath. I, I always say it, it let me breathe. Understanding disability as beautiful and desirable and a powerful way of moving through the world, finding disability political writing, it saved my life. Finding queer people of color that were political in community, that finding, finding political queer people of color community in Atlanta helped me to survive. It, it helped me to love myself outside of a white dominated and centered queer movement. Political queer people of community changed what I could even imagine was possible. And really, I think in so many ways, being queer is about having the courage and the desire to imagine more, to imagine what can be, the possibility for a different way to desire and love and be in relationship with each other. And I think we must be willing to have hard conversations as queer people with each other about how we are different as queer people. It helps us to expand what queerness even is, to see that there are many, many different ways to be queer. That we can't just decide to come together as queer people and expect that we're all going to be united and work together or that we'll even feel comfortable. And we cannot be afraid to do our own work at our own tables. And yes, there's much work to be done out there, right, for folks who aren't queer, who, don't, who aren't queer friendly. Yes, it's, that's important too, most definitely. But I think we are outsiders here as well, because really there is no out there. For those of us living with multiple oppressed identities, we know this very well inside and out. And as adoptees in particular, we know this well, especially as transracial and transnational adoptees. As people who strive many different communities, so much of our work must be done with people in our own communities, right? People at Grand Valley State University, people who are in our classes that we're going to school with, our families, folks who are our friends. And we do this work for our very survival because oftentimes we have no choice but to. There is literally nowhere else to go. Our homes are rarely comfortable. And I know queer folks know something about that too. So to me, there are so many ways that we are queered. We are queered by our bodies, our histories, our traumas, our desires. When I think about my queerness, I think about desire on a broad scale, right? I don't just think about who I desire sexually or romantically, and romantically is such an arbitrary word. What, what does that actually mean? Where are those lines between romantic and friend? Who knows? But I also think about my desire as a whole, right? I think about my desire for a better world. I think about my desire for family and home that feeds me. I think about desire for community that can hold love and accountability and access all at the same time. As a disabled person who doesn't desire to be able-bodied, I am at once queer, at once confusing. How could I not want to be as able-bodied as I possibly can? How can I not want to at least look as able-bodied as I possibly can? How can I desire to be disabled? How can I desire to be in the body that I have? I think even just the idea of shifting one's understanding of disability as not wrong is so hard for people to do because we have been told that time and time again, right? That even those of us who are disabled should be trying to not 
be disabled. We should be trying to cure ourselves, fix ourselves, make ourselves seemingly less disabled so that able-bodied people will feel comfortable. I'm queered by my body. I didn't have the right kind of body. It was wrong. It was something that needed to be fixed. It was tragic, something to be pitied, something that was undesirable. As I wrote recently, quote, as someone whose body has been and is still seen as public property to be commented on by strangers, given unsolicited advice or asking intrusive questions, to be stared at and made fun of, I fight daily to claim my body. Growing up as a disabled child, I went from doctors to brace makers, from surgery to surgery to physical therapy to doctors. And I ached for people who looked like me, people who moved like me. People who could tell me that my body was beautiful the way that it was and no surgery would ever make me able-bodied just as sure as no surgery would ever make me white. The idea of trying to make a brace that went from my heel to my hip so that it could be, quote, hidden underneath my clothes so that boys wouldn't detect it was at once an attempt to make me more desirable by making me seem less disabled and an assumption about who should desire me and who I should desire. It wouldn't make me more of a girl or a woman, something I never really completely understood or felt like, unquote. My disability queered me, is what I always say, and what I still think to this day. I mean, I know people say there are straight disabled people, but whatever, that they exist. But I believe that my having a disability was totally queer. Um, and having disability, it didn't really seem to fit with being a woman. It didn't really seem to fit with attracting boys or having children or getting married. I never saw disabled women in the media being desired, let alone disabled women of color, let alone queer disabled women of color. Ableism, the system of oppression, that maintains able-bodied supremacy got leveraged in the service of heterosexism, in the service of white supremacy, in the service of misogyny. People assume that I'm queer because I am disabled. People assume that it must be easier to find partners in the queer community as if the ableism in the queer community is any less common or severe, which we know is not true, as if straight people are the only people who can be ableist. This is obviously not true again. <laughs> and in fact, it is oftentimes ableism that keeps me the most isolated from queer community, from people of color queer community, from queer API community. Places are, not places are not accessible. Notions of queer bodies never seem to include people with disabilities. And actually, bodies is something that I think we're very uncomfortable talking about in the queer community in and of itself. I, I feel like most of my experiences within queer community have been about queer folks trying to do an able-bodied way of desire just in a queer way, but not actually challenging able-bodied notions of desire, right? Wanting to look good but and still maintain that you're definitely able-bodied. You just happen to maybe wear different clothing or have sex with different people, right? We're not actually getting to the root of desire. And I think that that, that is what I'm most interested in. And that has been what has felt most isolating at times, being around my Queer, queer family, who I love. I'm not queer first and then disabled. I'm queer and disabled. And I think ableism must be included in our analysis of oppression and in our work as queer people because ableism cuts across all of our movements, not just heterosexism and homophobia, but all of our movements. Because 
ableism dictates how bodies should function against the mythical able-bodied standard norm, right, that's built of white supremacy, heterosexism, sexism, economic exploitation, moral religious beliefs of age and ability, right, when we think about the kinds of bodies that are considered the norm, the kinds of bodies that people know about, even, um, you know, that, that when you go to the doctor, the, with the kinds of bodies that your body is being based on. Ableism and able-bodied supremacy, right, that there's a normal body that we should be trying to attain, that they directly oppress disabled people, but they also allow for the oppression of so many others. Ableism set the stage for queer and trans people to be institutionalized as mentally disabled, for intersex babies to be routinely operated on at birth, for communities of color to be understood as less capable, less smart, and less intelligent, and therefore naturally fit for slave labor, for women's bodies to be used to produce children when, where, and how men needed them, for people with disabilities to be seen as disposable in a capitalist and exploitative culture because we're not seen as productive. For immigrants to be thought of as a disease that we must cure because it's weakening our country. For violence and cycles of poverty and lack of resources to, and war to be used as systematic tools to construct disability in entire neighborhoods, communities, and entire countries. We think about what the impact is that war has on an entire country, an entire group of people. What happens to people's bodies when they don't have access to clean food or clean air, or they don't have access to health care, or they're being targeted by police brutality all of the time, or bombs are going off in their, in their neighborhood or their country? So I would ask you all in this room, all the able-bodied folks and in this audience who benefit from able-bodied privilege in many different ways, right? How are you connecting your fight for queer liberation or to be in solidarity with queer folks to challenging able-bodied supremacy? How are you connecting your queerness to your able-bodied privilege? How are you listening to queer disabled people in your world? How are you listening to disabled people in your world and supporting them and practicing solidarity? I'm sure most of us, pretty much everybody knows somebody who's disabled, whether or not we think about them as disabled or not, right? Whether or not they're out as disabled, because a lot of people have um, what some people call hidden disabilities or invisible disabilities. A lot of folks know people who are elders, right? Who are folks who, because of age, might have disabilities. A lot of people know folks who are disabled and who claim themselves as disabled, but do we ever listen to them? Do we ever talk to them about what it's like to be disabled? Do we ever think about what our impact is on them? How are you actively noticing how ability, ableism, and able-bodied supremacy play out in queer communities, in particular student groups, organizations, and movements? So my longing for queer community that reflects me and where I can bring my whole self is palpable, right? I, I used to talk about it like that if I was, you know when you would go to, well, I, when I would go to the beach and I would collect shells, I would like hold my shirt out and put the shells in my shirt and it would get heavier and heavier and I'd hold it as I kept walking down along the beach. But sometimes I think about it like if I'm picking apples and I'm like holding all these apples in my, in my shirt, right? And, I'm, and that's what I feel like sometimes, like I'm walking around 
on all the time, like just waiting to find places where I can like lay them down for a moment and just take a breath and let them kind of roll out and do whatever it is that they do. I don't know sometimes. You know, I, I feel like even when I was growing up, I didn't even know what that would be like. And so the first couple of places where I felt safe enough to do that, I would lay them down and then I have to pick them right back up because, oh, I think, oh, this is queer people of color community. I can, of course, be my whole self here. Here, these people will understand me. And then, of course, you know, started to talk about disability and it's like, no, 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 we don't actually want to talk about that here. It's more important to be disabled, to be queer and a person of color here. So that's what we're going to talk about. And then I have to pick them up and, and keep, and my shoulders are tired. I, I want to work as fast as I can with, with as much urgency as, and responsibility as I can to help create more whole spaces so that I can lay my apples down, right? So that other people can. I think the longing that we have as queer people for each other, for our families, for our people, that queer folks are, as think about a, we can think about queer folks as a people that have histories and legacies. That longing is something that we carry with us. I know I do. That it's part of me. It's part of us. We love our families, but they do not always love, accept, or desire us. What do we do with that longing? Where does it go? Where does it live, right? It pushes us to build our own families with, our, with other queer people, or sometimes it pushes us away from queer people and queerness and away from ourselves into our families and communities that help us to survive, but do not truly help us to live. It pushes us to cut off the queer people we love when they hurt us or when we hurt them because it also asks us to risk isolation, pain, and hurt again and again. That longing pushes us to choose between safety and connection, oftentimes compromising for one for the other, right? We can be safe as long as we're not connected. Or we can be connected but never safe. It pushes us to build our own chosen families and relationships, but also keeps us from returning to the very family that, families that raised us, that we were birthed into, from returning to the very places we were raised, the very land that we're from. And I think about that idea of returning a lot as an adoptee and as a queer person. What returning means for many of us as queer people, especially queer people of color, since we are oftentimes pushed out of where we are from. What returning to our land and people means, and it's not easy for all of us, and some of us have left for very good reasons, because of threats of violence, because we've had to just to be able to survive. I think about how our families and communities may not have had what they, have ne what they needed to be able to have kept us, or that we didn't have what we needed to be able to stay. I think about what, why we were given up, right, or, or why we chose to leave. I think about how many of us are from rural places but live in metropolitan cities because we can't go back, don't, go, don't want to go back to where we came from. And I think about my own trip back to Korea for the first and second time and what it means to find family and how we create belonging in our lives. And I believe as queer people, especially queer people of color, that building family and home is hugely important and political. As a disabled person, I think that redefining home, and I think about it often as reclaiming home, is some of the most important political work we can do, especially when so many of us are forced to be in our homes because the world is inaccessible, because of the severity of ableism. So I'm part of uh, this experiential project, um, like Colette talked about, to the other side of dreaming. Um, and you can find it at dreaminghome.tumblr.com. Um, and my friend and I, Stacy Milburn, 
and again, right, that like, what does romantic mean? What does friend mean? I, she's like my, my platonic life partner. She's my love. She's my family. She's kin. Um, we're both queer, disabled, um, Korean women of color. And so I think about her as so many things. We're not, you know, rom quote unquote, like romantically or sexually involved, but we are building our lives together. Um, and I think even that, right, when we think about what queerness means and how we creatively think about building families that are about building resiliency in our survival is even huge. To, to, to challenge the notion that only people who are partners with each other do that kind of thing. Um, but we were living, she was living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and she uses a power wheelchair, and we decided that we wanted to live together. And so um, we looked at around at cities all across the country, and Berkeley, California, actually was one of the most accessible, the most accessible city for somebody using a power wheelchair, uh, just in terms of flat accessibility, like to buildings and on sidewalks and things like that. But also they have um, the country's only um, citywide 24-hour access PA service, emergency PA service, where you can literally pick up the phone and call because you need somebody to come and help you, and they'll be there within like 15 minutes. It's kind of amazing. Um, they have, you can also call for accessible taxi cabs, you can also call for wheelchair repair, um, and they will be there so, so fast. Um, but we decided that, one, we wanted to live together because we had never lived with another disabled person. I had always grown up, um, my family uh, were all able-bodied folks. Um, my parents were white, and so I had always had whiteness at the center of my life, whether I liked it or not. Um, and they were, all of my immediate family are straight. And so I, I had never had the opportunity to, one, live with a disabled person, to center um, Koreanness in particular, but people of colorness, right, and to decenter whiteness, and to center um, queerness in that way, and with another disabled person of color, which was so exciting to me. And so we decided to live together and we have been building home. We found a place, um, she moved out, we found an accessible place which was such an experience. But I think about it as a reclaiming of home again, right? That we are figuring out what it means to build belonging and what it means to build the kind of homes that we had wished that we had grown up in. The kind of homes that we could be our whole selves in, where we can talk about disability and talk about um, you know, homophobia that happens to us and talk about all of how all of these things intersect. Talk about what it really means to be a queer disabled woman of color. And then, within that, talk about our differences, right? Because her experience as somebody who, who moves to the world in a power wheelchair using a ventilator is very different than my experience as, with disability. And what we have found is that in talking about our similarities, so many of our differences have come up. And that, to me, has been some of the most challenging but also the most exciting work. Um, and I think that for myself, when I think about queerness and disability, this is where I'm locating queerness and disability right now in building home and what that means and how so much of queer community is so inaccessible that what we've had to do is when Stacy moved out to the Bay, we had um, people who signed up for Care Shift Collective shifts and they would come to help her use the bathroom or to help with morning routine, to help with um, a nighttime, a bedtime routine. And they were 
all queer people, right? And so in some ways, there's also this other larger project of building accessible queer community and inviting our queer comrades in to start to build with them and to start to shift what queer community means and how we think about access so that it's not, it's not even just access around disability, which of course that we have to build because people don't know what that means, but also how we think about access on a broad scale, right? Access to bathrooms for folks who have disabilities, but also to bathrooms for folks who are trans, right? For people who have different genders. Access to bathrooms for folks around different class backgrounds or who may not be able to pay an establishment to be able to use their bathrooms. Access to lots and lots of different things. Access around childcare and parenting access to sex and relationships, particularly as queer people, right? We know that most people of queer people of color community is done in private spaces, right? It's, it's rare that you are find places where queer people of color can meet in public locations. Like it's built on house parties, it's built people word of mouth, right? It's, un, it's very underground most of the time. And so it's hard to have private spaces that are accessible. It's hard to figure out, I mean, even with Stacey and I, we've been talking a lot about, what does it mean that I have a lot more access to people to build with them, to build, you know, to build intimate relationships with them, whether that's just going over to somebody's house to hang out, whether that's um, having sex with somebody, whether that's going on a date with somebody, whether that's just even being in private space enough to flirt with somebody. And we think about what all of that means to queer people who are disabled, who were most houses are not accessible. Most houses, you know, are not, the bathrooms in particular are not wheelchair accessible. And what we've had, are realizing is that our house is becoming kind of like a center or a little bit of a meeting space because it's the only wheelchair accessible place that really exists in all of our queer community and friends that we have in the Bay Area. Um, and so again, right, thinking about what accessible queer community means, in particular what accessible queer people of color community means. And for myself, I think about what it means to create collective access. Again, right, thinking about access on a broad scale so that we're all helping to build accessible spaces for each other. And it's not just, oh, how can we help Stacy? But how do we actually expand what access means so that we can all have accessible spaces? And it's really exciting to me because the majority of people who are coming to help are majority queer Asian and Pacific Islander folks and who have never done access work before, who have never really moved in API spaces where people have talked about disability before. And so as we build deeper relationships and connections with them, and as we build family with them, like we know that queer people are great at doing, we open up space and opportunity for them to start to ask, how do I connect you all to my queer API community? And what would it take for queer API community to be accessible? I mean, for all queer community to be accessible, but in this particular example, I think what it means for Asian and Pacific Islander communities that are queer to be accessible. And the ways in which queer community excludes disabled people, right? So there was a party that was happening the other day and Stacy wanted to go to the party and it was being put on by a friend of ours um, and it was like all about queer POC community and it's to raise money for Safety Fest, which is a, um, a 
gathering of events that happens in the Bay to raise money for KUAV, an organization that does transformative justice and that works specifically around um, with queer and trans people of color communities who are being targeted um, around violence. And so this was this great party that we're going to have like, you know, music and drinks and lots of folks were going to be there. I'm, almost everybody that we knew was going. And the house wasn't wheelchair accessible though. So we were working with another disabled friend of ours, but she has chronic illness, um, and she's chronically ill. She uh, identifies as sick. And so she was working with us to try to get part of the house accessible. So she, I think, called back one day, and she was like, oh, it's, you know, I made it so that you can be in the backyard, and you can, there's a little ramp that will go from the backyard to the kitchen, so you can be in those two places. And Stacy was like, should I go? And I just thought, you know, I don't know that the, it's more than just having disabled people in the room, right? We know that just because disabled people are there doesn't mean that there's no ableism. Just because you have people of color in the room doesn't mean that there's no racism, right? Just because trans folks are there doesn't mean there's no transphobia. And I just thought, even though she would be there, would people even act right? You know, would it was going to be loud music. All the conversations would be above her head. It's the, the able-bodied atmosphere of having to, you know, hold your drink and carry on conversations and maybe hold a plate of food if they had food. You know, trying to, everybody trying to look good, maybe get laid. Also, you know, trying to look cute. Are people going to act right in that kind of an environment? Do we even have the skills yet or the resources in our communities to be able to even know what building, with if, if there were disabled folks there, would be like, right? And knowing that she and I would probably be the only physically disabled people there. Folks who have non-normative bodies in a disability sense, right? Which is really different than a lot of our chronically ill friends, right? Or friends who um, suffer from um, chronic pain or who identify as sick, right? That there's a difference in that. And that there's a very distinct difference, you know, that she and I definitely have, that I can walk upright, right? And that I'm level with what most people, where most people have conversations. And so we just had this long talk about that and about what, how that being isolated from that space isolates her from building with queer community, in particular queer people of color community, and how that isolates queer people of color community from building with her. And we had made a deal before we went out that we wouldn't go, if we were both invited to places, we wouldn't go if, the, if it wasn't accessible for the other one. So we both didn't end up going. But I think it's a really great example of that we want to move beyond access. We don't want it to just be, oh, this space is accessible you can get in the door. But we want to actually start to challenge what a culture of ableism looks like, what particular what a queer culture of ableism looks like, and how we've totally ingested ableism in our queer movements, in our queer communities, as a way of connecting with each other that totally disconnects other people. And who does it disconnect from us? Good, yes. So I know that we're getting on time, and so I want to make sure that we have time for a Q&A. Um, and I just want to say just quickly that part of the, the uh, to the other side of dreaming for me has been a huge amount about being an adoptee and what home means for me as an adoptee, right, who's queer and disabled, and as somebody who um, has never had access to people who are like me, even in the smallest ways, and that that has been very powerful as well. And to center um, 
to center even the possibility that home could exist in another way that didn't equal me having to isolate parts of myself or cut off parts of myself or cut myself right down the middle, that I could actually stay connected to myself and be home, I think has been very powerful. So I want us to strive to build movements and organizations and student groups and communities where we can bring our whole selves. I like to say where we can be whole and connected and not have to sacrifice one or the other, not have to say, I can be connected here as long as I'm not whole. I can be here as long as I don't talk about what it means to be an adoptee. As long as I don't talk about queerness, I can be in disabled spaces. As long as I don't talk about disability, I can be in racial justice spaces. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want to have to feel like I have to leave my community in order to be whole. That is not what we are talking about when we think about liberation. Our queerness, I do believe, just like our stories, are tools for liberation as well. Because again, it's more than just who we sleep with, right? It's more than just who we're attracted to. It's about how we value and create relationships. It's about how we love ourselves and each other. I, I truly believe that queerness is about how we love, especially for queer people of color who have always had to figure out how to love ourselves because nobody else is going to. It's about how about even the possibility of radical transformative love, even the possibility that that could exist. And it's also about how we desire and the power of our desires to create a different world for all of us and not just some of us. And it's this desire that I want to close with. Disability necessarily queers relationships and in the best cases offers an opportunity to build deeper and stronger connections that are firmly grounded in difference. In the worst case, disability, in worst case, ableism lays the groundwork for abuse, manipulation, and violence. Queer disability pushes us to confront our bodies and minds and wrestle desire and stigma to the ground until queer able-bodied people refuse to move forward without queer disabled people at every turn. Who do we desire to be and what kinds of communities and activism and movements do we desire? What kind of radical allies and solidarity do we desire? How do we desire to be with each other? How do we desire to work with each other? I believe it's about bringing our desire into our lives and our work every day in ways that make us more whole and keep us connected. It's about using our desires in ways that bring us closer to liberation. Now that is queer. It's about valuing all the different ways that we are queer people, we as queer people are queered, about valuing all of us and not just some of us. And I do, I think that we can imagine better ways of loving and fighting for each other. I know that we can. We can honor and challenge each other. We can be like me to exist. We can make mistakes and we can be complex and who can be brave enough to change ourselves institutions around us. We can love to community at all costs and not allow us to be privileged. Thank you all.
Cause y'all think jail is cool. But see, y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. I ain't cool about jail, nigga. Cool I've been here 10 years, and I ain't never getting out. Never. I ain't do much, just kill somebody. It ain't like the nigga ain't have it coming. He sure did. See, y'all think it's just about us in here. But this is about an oppressive up system designed to keep niggas down and Y'all wouldn't know nothing about that. What about you, little nigga? You know about that? Yes. Oh, you know about that? Tell me what you know about that. Tell me what you think about that. The prison industrial complex is a system situated at the intersection of government and private interests. It uses prisons as a solution to social, political, and economic problems. It includes human rights violations, the death penalty, slave labor, policing, courts, the media, political prisoners, and the elimination of dissent. Nigga, did you just say what I was trying to say, but smarter? 